folks, it's Jeff Fuzzy Wenzel from the Woodshed Agency, and you are listening to a new episode of Successfully Funded. Here we go. Let's turn it up. Turn it up. Yeah. All right, crowdfunders. How is everybody doing out there in the so-so place of crowdfunding, right? Not the wonderful place, like I said last time, right? It's just a so-so place. Hopefully, you guys are all doing well. If this is your first time, let me introduce myself. My name is Jeff Fuzzy Wenzel. I'm the CEO of Woodshed Agency. We are a marketing firm that specializes in crowdfunding, product launches, startups, entrepreneur world, that sort of stuff, right? We, we help products and companies find capital, uh, whether that's in the reward-based space, the equity space. Um, we even have some people around us that does grant writing. So, I mean, we could even go down that rabbit hole. So, with all that said, if this is, like I said, if this is your first time, thank you so much for showing up. Um, what we do is we try to talk to project creators either while they're in the middle of a campaign or you know, right after their campaign ends so that we can get the most up-to-date information on what's going on in the crowdfunding space, what's working for them, what didn't work, you know, what are the lessons that they might have learned. So again, that is what our ultimate goal is. So on today's episode, well, we've got a campaign that raised over $700,000. That's right. $700,000. So we're going to be talking to uh, Brady Whitney and his product is Codex. Uh, oh, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. My mic's not right. I don't think my mic is my mic right. Oh no, it is right. Just kidding. Hey everybody. So uh, like I said, the conversation that's coming up here is called uh, Codex Celindia. Celinda? Celinda. I don't know how to pronounce it very well. Codex Celinda. S-I-L-E-N-D-A. It's challenging for me to to, to say, I, I, I'm, I, I'm sorry. But my conversation with Brady was awesome. We talked about you know, what was the difference between his campaigns, even though there was three years apart, uh, his Kickstarters from his first one to the second one. We talked about how he had a goal of half a million dollars and crushed it, even during this, uh, you know, the world ending, the pandemic that's going on, you know, the coronavirus thing. Yeah, he ran his campaign through all that. So what we really get down to is when you have an amazing product um, that people want, I don't know if, if, if it matters as much. It really does come down to just a great, great product. So that conversation is coming up in just a minute. But, you know, if you're a regular listener, you know that this is my time, right? This is, this is the, uh, the Jeff Wenzel show right now. This is where I talk to, to everybody about just kind of what's going on in my life. Um, you know, so today, kind of an exciting day. I'm not going to lie. I'm going to be pushing this out to everybody here in the social media world in, in just a little bit. But if you go on to Spotify right now, um, I finally have put up the third Sugar People record called the Sugar Roses Collection. It's, uh, it just showed up today. This is Friday when I'm taping this. And you can now listen to the 2011 album that never got released because my singers quit. So um, yeah, they decided that they didn't want to work on stuff anymore, even though it took us about three years to do the record. Um, I actually sat with it today you know, kind of just reminiscing, kind of going back in my mind of, of, of what it was like, um, where, where I was writing those songs mentally, the people around where we were in life. It's before kids. Yeah. Yeah. It was a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> kind of blown away by it. But if it's something you guys want to go explore, go on Spotify, type in the sugar people. 
and you can see our three records up there, the Ray Stable story, uh, then the Sugar People record, that's the, the second one. And then the third one is the Sugar Roses collection. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to toot my own horn here. I was pretty proud of this record. It, it's sonically, it could, it could do some other stuff, I think. But songwriting wise, I think it's pretty good. I know, I know I'm giving myself, I'm tooting my own horn here, but it was good. It's good. It's good. If you guys want to go and listen to that, you know, first listen to this podcast episode, then, you know, go over to Spotify or iTunes or wherever you listen to music anymore. It's on everything. And, uh, and check it out. Check it out. Maybe you'll tell me that I'm, I'm right, that it's not bad. That's pretty good music, you know? Um, and I, I bring up all this because it took me, this is about a three-year task in our project management tool for me to actually put this record out. Um, I, you know, would go back and forth as to why, why do I need to do this? Who cares? Does it matter? Um, and eventually kind of settled upon, you know what? I am going to throw this out there in the world. Um, another reason is that you kind of heard me talk a little bit around, I may actually try to put a band together to go out and play a lot of these songs live once again. Um, a couple of months ago, you heard me talk about, again, if you're a regular listener, you heard me talk about, you know, I've, I've, I had that story around watching my kids, um, you know, really get into it. So imagine, you know, getting into my, my, my music, finding it on, I, uh, on Spotify, playing it through Alexa, dancing, liking the songs and, and just realizing that they didn't even know that that world existed. Even yesterday I was mixing for the church. Um, and you know, I was, I met a lot of people I don't know. Well, not a lot. Cause we can't really meet. We're all six feet apart from each other, but, um, you know, people ask me why I have the nickname fuzzy, um, and, you know, and realizing that people, man, there's just so many people that don't know that whole part of my world here. And if you don't know why the world, the name fuzzy, it's comes from the old rock and roll days. Um, before children, I used to have a beautiful, beautiful, um, last Mohican style Mohawk with feathers all in it. Um, it went, the, the hair went almost down to the middle of my back, uh, in this, well, maybe not that far, uh, top of the back, but it was long, very lustrous. It just, it looks so amazing. And, um, then I had, had my son and then I got married and Aaron did not want me to have that kind of hair in the wedding. So I got rid of the, the Mohawk and then from there, my hair never grew back and now I'm bald. Um, and I might've been going a little bit bald there as well. I'm not going to lie about that, but having the two children and having the businesses that definitely made me go bald. Um, but that's where the nickname fuzzy comes from for all of you guys out there who, who have wondered, it comes from the rock and roll days. And, um, now I just make people feel fuzzy when they listen, when they talk to me. That's, that's, I've heard that too. So, but you know, today's one of those days of, you know, I went to Spotify, I got the notification that it's out. And just kind of going there, looking at it, seeing it there, there's, there's a little bit of a proud moment. I'm not going to lie, a little bit of a proud moment there. So I'm going to be sending this out all over social media, you know, about that it's out. Um, you know, hey, everybody's quarantined, right? What else do they got to do? Listen to some music, right? Um, yeah, like everybody else who's putting out stuff, right? But who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? So that happened today. Super excited about it. All right, everybody. So tonight, I'm going to do karaoke. Again, like I, I recorded this Friday. Uh, so my Friday night, we've got uh, community karaoke happening tonight all through Zoom. We're going to try this. Uh, I think my first song is going to be Brother Loves Travel and Salvation Show. That's the first song I'm going to sing. And then followed up, I think, by Shout at the Devil by Motley Crue. Those are my two. So Neil Diamond, 
followed up by Motley Crue. Those are my first two, first two jams out of the gate. And we're going to do this. We're going to do it through Zoom. We're going to have a bunch of our friends online, and we're going to see if we can make it happen. It's going to be a train wreck, but, you know, hey, we'll do it for a little bit. <sighs> That's what's also going on. So, all right, everybody. If, this is a, if, if you're enjoying what you're hearing here, make sure you're a subscriber. Go over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast now and hit the subscribe button. That way you get, as soon as we launch an episode, boom, it shows up. Um, if you want to go and read a lot of our content that we're putting out, go to woodshed.agency backslash blog. We've got new content coming out almost every other day as well. So it's uh, usually we release our podcast on Mondays and Thursdays and blogs on Tuesdays and um, Fridays. Um, so make sure you subscribe, make sure you sign up for our newsletter so that you're always up to date on anything. And last but not least, if you are thinking about running a campaign, don't do it before you at least, at least give me a call. Um, go to woodshed.agency backslash consultation. And there's my calendar. Pick a time to talk. It's 20 minutes. It's free. Let me at least kind of give you a mindset as to what needs to be happening before you hit that launch button. Um, but okay. All right, everybody. Why don't we go ahead and listen to my conversation with Brady and let's talk about puzzle books and how to raise $700,000 too. All right, everybody. Here's my conversation. All right, Brady, the red light's on. So now this is when all the pressure starts to happen and you have to like, literally you got to make magic, right? Podcast magic has to happen now. Um, while we do a quick, quick sound check, uh, why don't you tell my listeners what you had for breakfast this morning? Uh, egg waffles. I'm, I'm pretty basic when it comes to breakfast. It's either a bowl of cereal, egg waffles, or bacon and eggs. That's, that's the real, real. That's the big day. Uh, now, are you just blueberry, chocolate, plain? Yeah, yeah, you do anything fancy? Lane, I, uh, this, this, okay, so this is going to be something I'm going to share now that you'll be the first person to tell the rest of the world about. I am weird when it comes to food. I don't eat chocolate. I don't eat cookies, ice cream, cake, pie, most desserts, pudding. I mean, the only thing I really eat is probably vanilla cake, vanilla ice cream. I'm as white, <laughs> white can get. All right. Okay. That's good to know. Uh, so it's just, it's just a taste thing. It's not like a diet thing of like, Hey, I just don't want that type of sugar or the process. It's just a taste thing, man. I mean, like the, the weird thing is for the lack of like for chocolate, I make it up for okay. pickles. Hey, my son is a pickle eater, man. He, yeah, he, he downs the pickles. Uh, we, we can't even keep like a jar. We get, I'm like, geez, where do these pickles go? I ate them yesterday. It's like, we bought them yesterday. So yeah. Now it's seriously, now, isn't there something that like some people like just have like, like just like the taste, but of chocolate, like, like it just, it doesn't taste like, it doesn't taste sweet. It almost tastes like a poison type of thing. Isn't there something like that where like, it definitely tastes different. For me, it's it's kind of weird. It's more like chocolate actually smells like BO. It's more a smell thing, I think, than a tasting, but the smell affects the taste anyway. So, I mean, I can eat chocolate. It's not like I'm going to die from it or anything, but at the same time, it's just not preferable. Yeah. I, think, I think the other one is, uh, I was thinking cilantro. Like, for some people, like cilantro is like bo. It just it, and it's like no. It's what are you talking about? It's That's just cilantro. a plant. I I never taste it because you're not supposed to taste it. I guess and from my understanding, you're supposed to taste it as an influencer, not as the main. Right, right. Like that flavor in it or something. So all right. Well, I think we've gone down that rabbit hole. I think uh, we did our good sound check. We went down the rabbit hole. We got uh, we got everybody uh, aware of what we're talking about. But what, what, let's flip over to the actual uh, why we're talking. So. Um, I would love for you to kind of tell my listeners um, what you just got done finishing uh, raising money for over on Kickstarter and what your product is. 
So uh, this is actually our second Kickstarter um, that we've launched. Our first one three years ago, or no, I think it's now four, back in 2016, um, I launched uh, kind of just as a side project. I figured it was going to be just a small hobby and maybe get a cool laser out of the deal. Um, I offered this five-page mechanical wooden puzzle book uh, to the internet just saying, hey, if I raise you know, 30 grand, I can get a small laser and make these uh, in my spare time uh, after I come home from work or whatever. Um, Cause I had just graduated college too. Well, flash forward three years later, we are at a point where we now have our own little workshop. We have a full little team of manufacturing uh, uh, worker elves essentially. And uh, we're, we're steadily getting them out, but the, the equipment that we purchased from the first campaign wasn't really production quality essentially we've we've struggled with bugs and delays and uh, the whole point of this kickstarter was to one get us more equipment that was more efficient to get us a larger facility because where we're at we only have 1200 square feet and we're completely filled to the brim i mean i've had to build two extra shelves in the loft area just to make a little extra room so we can put some boxes out of the way um and then three we needed to raise funds for uh more employees too. I mean, we just need more people to make these faster because the demand is just crazy for it. And, and we ended up raising 714,000 uh, from 1500 plus backers in our 21 day campaign. That's cool. And, and for our listeners who are listening, kind of walk through the best you can kind of describe a puzzle book, like a wooden puzzle book. Um, Cause I, you know, visually they, you know, if they go to the page, they can see it. But like for the people who are just listening, what, what, what are we talking about here? So just like, uh, so this, this puzzle actually ends up being both a story and a puzzle. Uh, you got to basically solve your way through the book in order to understand what's happening in the story to get further developments as well. At the same time, you're getting hints and clues from the story. So the idea is basically an apprentice in Da Vinci's workshop comes across this wooden mechanical puzzle book or just a book looking thing. Um, and it ends up trapping him inside. And now you have to help him solve each of the puzzles in order to escape before Da Vinci can return and uh, basically fire him for snooping through his workshop. And, and each page is a mechanical puzzle, 3D puzzle that you have to solve and unlock the bolts in order to open it up and go to the next page where there is the story that's engraved on the back of them so that you can read that there, get your hints and clues, and move on to the next puzzle. And then at the very end of it is a small secret little compartment that you can hide various things, uh, very small tokens and uh, things like that. I've had some people even hide engagement rings in. So hmm. that's, re that's really cool. So where is like the the first sort of idea about this? I mean, you talk about being you know in college, something think about a side project, but I personally have never even seen anything like this. So, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm just, I'm, maybe I'm not in this world. Maybe they do exist. But like, for me, one of the things was like, holy cow, I've never even, this is, this blew my mind type of thing. Right. So where, where was this idea of like, Hey, I want to get into this. I want to create this. I think I can create it. That's the other thing too, is where did that sort of start from? So it actually all started back in 2015, no, 2016, technically still. Um, it was my final semester at Iowa State University where I was finishing my career, uh, my degree in industrial design. Um, I had a focus in toys and games. And, and for our final semester, they basically challenged the seniors to go, hey, you've been here for four or five years. We've taught you everything we know. Now go out into the real world, find a problem design and develop a product that solves it, and then present that as your thesis project at the end of the year, basically, you know, do you pass or fail? And uh, a lot of students, you know, take the conceptual route, they do ideas or project problems that either can't be solved right this second, 
but they don't have the funding to do so. And I was like, why would I waste six, you know, five, six months of my time when I have all of this time, all these resources and everything else to develop something. So I'm like, you know what, I'm going to find something that I can actually make right this second with a cheap piece of equipment or at least a, a decent piece of equipment and not have to do anything else. And so from that very beginning, I wanted to make something that was easy to do with minimal amount of labor ideal, but at the same time, something I could still mass produce and it'd still be desirable by the masses. And I've always, always, always loved the books you see in um, old uh, mystery movies and stuff like Indiana Jones, the Harry Potter. They always pull that old tomb out that's dusty and everything. You want to blow it off and check the pages for all the hidden secrets. And I already kind of had that desire for something to exist and nothing has ever looked like that before. And I came across the mechanical iris, which is actually the very front of the book. You look at it. Um, someone had posted a design online for how a mechanical iris would work uh, for free. And I was like, that's really cool. I wonder how I might be able to implement that. And then I, I got more or less just, you know, flash in the head like, oh, let's make a book out of this. I can make this it could be the first page. Then I can make a second, a third and a fourth. And we'll see where we go from there. And, and slowly over the course of that semester, I developed the first five pages um, and had a prototype that had three out of the five working pages. Right, right, right. So in that process for you, um, you know, once you started putting this together, is it still making a prototype of it? Is it, you know, I guess, cause I guess for me, creating a puzzle isn't something I do every day as well. So like, how does that, what starts to happen in terms of, of shaping out and at least getting this to, a, you know, to something that you could hold or see or, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it, it kind of goes back to how industrial design is actually set up. We are engineers, essentially, that don't do the hard math. Like, we're, we're not supposed to do the calculus, we're not supposed to do all the physics and all that fun stuff, but we can do all the other cool stuff. Um, and uh, basically, it starts off with find the idea, then sketch a million things. Doesn't mean it doesn't matter if it's garbage or if it's good. You're just trying to get as much stuff out of here onto paper. And then you start doing what we call the funnel in, funnel out effect, where basically you, you narrow your sketches, you go broad again, you narrow them again, you go broad, you go narrow. That sort of like mentality is how you come up with the general look of something. Um, after that, then it's like a lot of just, for me personally, it's a lot of playing through uh, CAD modeling. Um, my, I'm, the way that I work or the way I design, I'm able to visualize, visualize things very clearly in my head. And then it's more or less trying to develop what I see in my head onto the computer screen. And the, the only best way that's ever worked for me is having a computer because I can do that quick control Z and change and do all that other fun stuff. But um, yeah, I guess, I guess in terms of just developing this thing, it, it's just, it's just a steady process of, you know, trying to figure out what exists in the market and how can I add my own unique twist to it. And then when it comes to designing puzzles, you almost have to think in reverse. You go, I already have the solution. Now, how do I put barriers and obstacles in your way to prevent you from getting to the solution? You know, so in this process, how long is it, um, you know, this is before you do that first Kickstarter and that sort of stuff, but how long is that process before you feel like you at least had those, those three, the three out of the five, I think you said, right? Like how long did that process take for you? Uh, it was pretty much the whole semester. I mean, I was, I was grinding to the last second uh, at the end of the semester and even though I didn't have a fully ready prototype, I was a lot further in terms of having an actual product that was working versus, you know, the rest of my classmates that the professor wasn't going to, you know, flunk me or anything for a, a malfunctioning prototype or anything. But uh, 
uh, it definitely took another probably year and a half, I would say, if not two, to truly fully flesh out all the bugs, errors, and issues. Because when you're CAD modeling, you, there are certain things you just don't know will work in the real world because physics and to uh, the material you're using just has different roughness, friction. There's a million factors into it. And we've had to tweak pieces to like almost 0 0.005 degrees of inches just to make them work a little bit better. So in that process, um, where was the, what, where or was there a moment that you really did know that you had something, that it, it, it switched from being maybe a college project or you know something on the side to like, wow, I really, like this is really something like my it's working you know like was there a moment like that yeah well there's there was actually a i would say a step almost of moments in terms of how you determine it like when i first came up with the idea it was just something i was like oh this is something i so want to own i can't wait to see what it looks like when it's finished then at the end of the semester we do a senior show where we get to show off our project to our family friends and anybody else who wants to come in it's kind of just an open show for the public and that was the next moment when I noticed, you know, oh, people actually think this thing's cool because it, the, the way my booth was positioned to the front door, you could see where I was immediately, but you had to actually cross the room to get to me. It was a beeline, almost line from the door to my booth. You could almost see like a, a path worn in the, in the floor if you wanted to, not really, but um, that was when I, that was the second moment. And then the third moment I would say was uh, uh, when I posted a few photos online on I always butcher this name, Imager or Imager, whatever it is. And overnight, 24 hours, 120,000 views, four or 500 comments of people simply saying, you know, take my money and give me one of these. And I was like, okay, we got to do a Kickstarter then. So, yeah. And in that, in that process too, was there ever a moment or, um, or what, maybe what was like the biggest roadblock that you might've uh, been, you know, working through? Is it capital? Is it design? Is it, time what was the biggest roadblock maybe for you time is this so still side project from with other stuff going on so i i've i have not spent a single moment of personal time doing any other projects any other ideas besides this project for the last three years i mean I, i've had obviously some personal time but i i've been working six days seven days a week just because to me it isn't a job it's actually fun for me to do this day in and day out but it is also a grind. It's 15, 16 hour days, going to sleep, maybe getting six hours. I still want to game a little bit at the end of the day too. So um, it's definitely been an ordeal for sure, but it, it's been a fun one at the same time. So I, so, so kind of through all that process, um, it sounds like during this point too, you're still the one man band at this point, like, or, or are you no, starting to add team no, members? No, 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 no. I have, uh, I've had Nathan, who is my main assembler. He's the guy who puts the books together nowadays. Um, he's been doing that for the last two years, I'm pretty sure. Either two years or coming up on two years. But he's actually my best, uh, childhood best friend too. So uh, when I came back home from Connecticut after leaving my full-time job and decided to take the business full-time, he happened to be back home as well. And I, and you know, he was in between jobs and I said, yo, I need help on my small business. If you want to help me put these things together, we can have fun while we're doing it. So, and he's, he's stuck with me the longest time uh, among the people we have. And then we have a few others who are pre-assembler Casey. She puts uh, smaller pieces and glues pieces together to prep them for uh, Nathan so he can put them together a lot faster. And then we have a few schoolers doing part-time work like staining sheets, sorting trays. Um, we've definitely gotten the process 
very flushed out in terms of we have the right amount of people for what I would call a single squad or a single production line, essentially. And I want to get it to the point where I have three squads, essentially. Sure, sure. So when you're putting together that process, do you in your mind already know, like, I know I'm going to have to add these three, four pieces for me to to scale or, you know, like, are you mentally already kind of putting what you need in or is it still kind of come in as like, all right, I now need the Casey, right? Like I need that person now. I need this person, you know, and you start to, as you're going, or did you kind of have that in your mind? I would say, I would say, I would say when we started the very first campaign back in 2016, zero idea. I thought I was doing everything by myself. I I thought I was going to be able to laser, assemble, cut, stain, do all this stuff. And it was like, I, I don't know where I thought I had the time, but, um, then, then when Nathan, Nathan came on board, then it was just me and him for a while. We tried doing that. I think we were producing maybe two, maybe three books a day at, at, at most with us two. And then as we added every single person, we've increased it more or less by a book a day, um, which really helps us out every single time. It has definitely been a learning process. Nathan has brought up plenty of changes to the process that I never would have thought of or considered because I'm not putting them in day in and day out like he does. And so it gets direct swinging in that hammer. These things, we make them so that they don't fall apart, obviously, but at the same time, it's, it's hard to put them together because we make sure that they don't pop open, essentially, because of the, the method that we use to put them together. Gotcha, gotcha. And where where does this product sort of fit in in sort of the, the, shelf, life, the shelf world, right? Is it puzzle only? Is it book? Is it a is there a crossover category out in the world? Like, is it a game board game? It feels like it's kind of working through these sort of three channels in my mind. So like, where do you guys envision this thing is sitting? You know. So that, that's the thing. This, this product is I'm trying to think of the right word to describe it because this is something I'm almost learning myself as I've developed it because, you know, when I envisioned it being one way specifically this way only, you know, I never thought that other people would want to use it for this thing or that thing or whatever. Like when it came to the wedding proposals, I never considered this being a wedding proposal. But who would want to make their wife or husband do that sort of thing? That's just evil. But but um, then there's also the D&D guys who are like, I could use this for a campaign, make my guys, you know, puzzle their way through a campaign or dungeon. I'm like, that's actually pretty dope. I would love to do that. Um, so that, that kind of thinking that has actually what inspired the five different design themes that we have in our new Kickstarter of Norse, Mayan, Necronomicon, Da Vinci, and Egyptian. And each one of those has its own unique storyline, its own design theme and look. Um, the puzzles themselves are the exact same, but each of the stories interacts with the puzzle in a different way or tells a different you know, story. But, um, with, with, with just that knowledge, though, I've already had, you know, it's more or less a product that is its own category unto itself because it can apply to so many different uh, fields from the, the wedding industry to the puzzle making industry to even escape rooms. I mean, I've got escape room people begging me to put these in their rooms. It's like, I would love to. I just can't make them fast enough. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. Well, let's, let's flip over a little bit to the actual, this last Kickstarter. Um, so, you, I mean, we, we gave the numbers up top. I mean, you, you crushed it, obviously, you know, uh, raising the 700,000 uh, plus. Um, so, you know, a lot changed, I'm assuming business internet between Kickstarter one, Kickstarter two. So what were you looking for 
as your approach to the second Kickstarter in terms of data numbers that you think you could do? Cause again, you also had a high goal, right? Like most people don't have a $500,000 goal either. Right. So what was kind of the conversations behind the scenes as to, you know, your approach for this, this, this campaign this time. So basically the same thing with the first Kickstarter, it was, um, all myself in terms of the design of the campaign and layout and I actually did that all in the month before I launched it. Um, I know a lot of people say you're supposed to take five to six months to prep for a Kickstarter but I don't work unless I'm on the grind so <laughs> I like I like to have the time clock over my head but anyway um, I definitely took everything I learned from the first Kickstarter and heavily applied it to the second one as well um, as well as researching you know current Kickstarters that are going on um, but as I, I was developing this one, the 500,000, it was really kind of my, the reason I set the goal that high was really because that is the base minimum of what I need to warrant my move, to warrant my increase in scale and everything. Because if, if I couldn't raise that right off the bat, then it would be better to go steady and grow slow than trying to do it the quick way that we're doing with because basically Kickstarter is allowing me to leapfrog my business by years compared to the tried and true method of bootstrapping. Um, but at the same time, uh, it, it gives me kind of, I don't know how to describe it. It gives me an edge in terms of, uh, being able to produce a product from scratch and not have to worry about running out of funding while we're only halfway through the product's development. This way I have everything there. And, and because of the first Kickstarter, I'm already past the development stage. This is really just the final stage of getting us to a level where everything after that, I would never need a Kickstarter hopefully again to raise money for a product. But at the same time, I like Kickstarter because it really does create a community of people who simply just love your ideas or love the person who's created them more so than the product itself. And I see it as a, as a, almost a future business model for a lot of startups and small people who want to create a business out of a really cool idea. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's something I tell my project creators too, is really imagine this, yeah, the money is nice, but you're creating this in these insiders, you're creating this community. Um, yes, you're getting capital, but you really should be using this Kickstarter probably to launch almost every product. Just again, put it out there, test it, get it, get everything right. And then spend a bunch of money maybe in e-commerce or Amazon or whatever, you know, wherever comes next. Well, I mean, it's almost more sustainable this way because, I mean, when you think about the 80s and 90s and Walmart and all the big guys, when they have their big box stores, they would go through thousands of products on the shelves. And, and if it didn't sell, it didn't sell. They threw it away. And you'd probably lost a really great invention that actually just needed to be seen by more people. And that's where crowdfunding is really changing that game because it's actually giving the market a direct voice to the maker saying, Hey, this is actually what we want. This is what we really want. Not, not this, you know, baloney over here. So, so for you to have a goal at, you know, to, to hit these, this, these goals you wanted, were there metrics you were looking for before you hit that launch button that you wanted to see, or did you just feel like you had enough energy and enough kind of clout on the internet of just people wanting it that you didn't have to really worry about it as much? So, I'll say this. I thought I was going to have a lot more people jumping on. Um, it was only 1,500. I was expecting anywhere from 5,000 to 15,000 because I have a waiting list of 50,000 emails. And the, the conversion rate would have been a lot better, I felt like. Obviously, if the outbreak hadn't hit right when it did. But 
um, I definitely knew I had a big enough list that I was going to meet my goal regardless. It was more, I was actually more worried about the tail end aspect of was I going to over succeed way too much and not be able to handle it. That's, that was where actually most of my concerns were. Um, but at the same time, I think I kind of messed myself up or at least screwed myself over a little bit with Kickstarter's um, algorithms because even though our campaign is massively successful compared to most, we set our goal way too high. And I think, I think I've kind of pegged it now that the, al the algorithm more or less works off of your percentages raised versus what you're actually trying to get or how fast you do it. They really don't care about that. They just want the percent. And that's the thing that kind of bugs me a little bit is that Kickstarter is missing out on the bigger campaigns that have a lot of interest because the, there's a lot of interest. I mean, they got these, they got all these little tiny campaigns on there that are only eight grand or 10 grand raised. And it's like, yeah, they're a thousand percent for 10 grand over a thousand goal. That's, that's why it's nothing fancy to see. And then most of them are really bad ideas from my perspective, but um I don't know. I just, I just feel like Kickstarter needs to tweak the algorithm a little bit better for that. Well, I, I think too, and again, there's no exact science on this, but from what we watch um, is I think it's also tied into your bounce rate, how much traffic, like how much you're sending per day, how much conversions you're getting per day. Um, and I think they're watching that bounce rate in your Google analytics. Um, so again, if you're sending a thousand people and you're getting 50, 50 pledges, they're like, this is awesome. But if you send that same thousand and you get three backers, they kind of start pushing you down, 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 down. Gotcha. And that probably is what, that probably is what killed me because the first Kickstarter, I think the other reason the first Kickstarter blew up so quickly and it's so fast as it did was that the pricing was really, really, really low for the book, but I had not budgeted for anything back then in terms of labor or anything else. Cause I thought again, it was going to be myself and I was making 50 or hundred. If it was just by myself and 50 or hundred, 175 was totally affordable, but now we had to obviously increase our pricing and that definitely pushed some people away. But I think the virus outbreak uh, definitely scared a lot more because um, roughly around the middle of the campaign, there was actually a massive influx as well as outflux of people coming in and pledging and then someone else literally dropping their pledge two seconds later. It was, we were literally hovering at 630 for the longest time. I think we probably lost anywhere from a hundred to 200,000 extra just because of the people who would have been in on it from the get go and backing out. So, yeah. So, so just speaking of, uh, around that, one of our, our new strategies that we're kind of internally talking about as an agency is um, shortening our Kickstarter time periods. I mean, I think you mentioned, did you do, do 21 days and your how long did you do? Yeah. So shortening ours and then it moving over to like an Indiegogo in demand or something like that as fast as possible um, to get those people to pledge. Cause as soon as they pledge, the money actually comes out, you know what I mean? Where they don't have that time to think of, they don't let, you know, three or four weeks don't go by after they pledged in the first couple of days and go, you know what? I don't really need that. You know, uh, I'm, you know, so we're, we're thinking about shortening our time period a little bit on the Kickstarter side of it. See anything over 30 days is ridiculous. I mean, there, there's no reason to run it that long. And, and to be honest, doing a full month just to raise the money is again, unless you really think you're going to be breaking in people every single day of those 30 days, you're really just creating a bunch of wasted waiting time. And, and, and to be honest, 21 days for my campaign might've been even too long for that. I should have probably done 14. Um, but the 21 days gave me enough time to more or less connect with my community really well through what I did, which was a meta puzzle. I actually ran a meta puzzle throughout the campaign um, through updates and changes to my campaign and 
subtle little tiny ways and they absolutely loved it and they all uh whoever won the meta puzzle eventually would get some pretty sweet rewards and gifts so that was a really good way to keep people engaged on the page as well too that's very cool where so for you then in this scenario where does um like where does kickstarter sort of fit in your mind in terms of more products on the road i know you mentioned that hey i might never have to do this but kind of where do you think like is it just all money is it continuing to launch more and more products as your or more books, I should say, down the road. How do, how do you kind of feel like this could play into your overall just business strategy? So, I mean, I guess it, it depends on what type of business you envision your yours becoming. And, and the one that I would like to become ideally is that we're basically another IDEO or someone who just comes up with fantastic ideas, fantastic products, prototypes, things like that. We use Kickstarter to more or less gather a community or a group or whatever and show support for the product, which gives me a little more clout when I enter a major manufacturer and say, hey, I got this idea, raise uh, you know, a million on Kickstarter. Do you want this idea? And they'll be like, yeah, sure. And sign a deal and sign a licensing deal. And then that way I don't have to deal with anything after that point i can't i take my royalties and i move on to the next three projects i want to work on um I, i've told everybody that i would like to obviously stick with puzzles and toys because that's my main passion but i also want my business to branch off into virtual reality gaming potentially as well as um what was the other direction oh board games I, I love board games as well so i really want to be a guy who who's all about spending your free time doing something that's not just fun and creative, but also something that's, um, can maybe teach a lesson or, you know, increase your abilities to do something better in, in the learning field. Essentially. I might go more towards education aspect. Yeah. Well, I, I wonder too, how much have you thought about, and this is kind of my thinking when I was looking, you know, researching and reaching out and all that sort of stuff around, um, you know, I think one of the reasons board games do so well is it, we want to unplug from our, our, our device on Friday night with our friends. Um, is that, really where you think this product is kind of fitting it because that's what i thought too i was like this would be awesome to just unplug i don't i don't need to have my phone with me for whatever 30 minutes an hour whatever it is um are you feeling like that's what you're sort of diving into is that culture of person who just i just want to put my phone down for an hour i mean i think this just hits it hits everybody in different ways but at the same time it hits the same human nerve which is the one of pure curiosity and mystery like if we see something that we don't know what it is but it looks interesting we can't help ourselves we're going to be drawn to it magnetically and and that is kind of what this codex has exhibited is almost a supernatural ability to just pull people across the room and just come and go at the very least they just be like what is that like, I just want to know what it is. Tell me what it is. And, and that at least gets this conversation started kind of thing. And that's where I've got a lot of people who are just buying it, not to play with it, not to do anything with it, but put it on the coffee table. I can like, see the coffee oh. table. Yeah. That's my, <laughs> I can see that. I can see this being an instant or like even, I was even thinking like, I, I, we may pick one up for my office um, because I could just see like the clients coming in and being like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hold it, do something with it. Wait a minute, you know, whatever, you know, while we're, yeah. Oh yeah. It's a waiting, it's a waiting room wonder essentially, especially because like I said, this thing is so versatile. I can engrave anything. Cause that's the beauty of laser cutting. You can personalize just about anything you make on them. So I can make it so that it has your, your name, your business engraved on a logo that you can not, that doesn't have to be part of the puzzle. You can actually have it as an insert, pull it out the front. Um, 
but yeah, th there's just a million different things I could do to it. And this is just uh, product one of three in a trilogy I have planned. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's flip over to that. So, I mean, you know, you've got, you know, money is probably starting to, you know, drop, you know, all, you know, starting to do all the collection. What starts to happen for this next year to get out those, you know, get products to those 1,500 new backers? What starts to happen in your guys' whole universe and world? Yeah, so uh, we, this is actually, because our first Kickstarter has taken us so long, we actually are still trying to fill, fulfill rewards for them, but we're on the final tail end uh, stretch of that, and that's kind of why we launched this Kickstarter, because the way I planned it is that it was going to take us roughly, I would estimate two to three months to find a new building, to hire new people. It might take us even longer than that, but I kind of already built that into this campaign aspect for that. Um, so because in the meantime while we're searching for those places and uh trying to find those new people i still need to keep the current workshop busy and doing something else while we're doing that and that is just what we're going to spend the next three months still working on the first kickstarter's rewards once those are fully finished and flushed out we will move the business do all our relocating all of our training probably for i would say it'd take us probably anywhere from two to four weeks and then after that point, it's just trying to get everyone and everything, all the gears rotating and moving and, and cohesion. Um, the more teams that we hire, the much faster we will produce the books. Uh, the more lasers we get, the much faster we will do it. Um, and, and that's the beauty of uh, pledge managers like CrowdOx, which is what we're using for our campaign. Um, it's going to allow us to hopefully keep on bringing in additional pre-orders throughout the year as we're developing it and, and further making it better, um, which really just, I think, would help us out in the long run, speeding everything up even faster and getting these books out even quicker. Uh, original plan was to have hopefully, you know, 2,500 books done by the end of the year. If we had a 5,000 orders, we're at 1,500 instead. So we actually should be done within the year, if not faster, but there's a million factors that can change that timeline. Right, right, right. And then what is sort of like the long tail play on this? Is it big box retail for a product like this? Is it Amazon? Is it just being an online, you know, delivery system? Where do you kind of envision, you know, the dust settling for this type of a uh, type of product line? For this product itself, I mean, I th we, we have a licensing partner who is going to be selling unassembled kits on Amazon. And I would like to think that they eventually they would probably switch into gears to do the assembled as well once they can get their factories to figure out how to put these things together. Because that's the other thing we've noticed is that um, the, the, the factories that we've used in the past, they just can't quite figure out the, the nuances of putting these things together. And it's something that you got to show someone in person how to do it. And that's where I feel like we're still going to be making a lot of these custom things, essentially, on our end, in-house at least for five, 10 years, or as long as demand, demand lasts, really, um, I would like to eventually be able to just hand it off entirely as a licensed product, let someone else do it all. So I can move, you know, to different realms and different ideas and whatnot. But um, my plan is to hopefully, once we get the production rolling for this Kickstarter, and the rewards actually start going out the door, all of my time will no longer hopefully be spent on the campaign, but working on book number two, and book number three, which are supposed to be the sequels to this one. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, where can people dive in, learn more, pledge if they missed out, or you know, kind of dive in your guys' world? Where do you want to send people? Uh, www.codexsilenda.com. It's pretty basic. Just search the product on Google. It should pop right up at the top. Um, if not the top, it's the second to the top. But <laughs> um, 
uh, other than that, there's also just going to our Kickstarter page, which will still link you to the pledge manager. And that's where you can make your pre-orders and get your additional rewards if you want more. Awesome. And I'll put all that in the show notes for anybody out there who's listening and, uh, and, uh, didn't get a chance to write that down. Just go to the, go to where everything's hosted. It'll be all in there. And, uh, Brady, I, th- I, I know you're busy. I appreciate you taking time out of your day. This was a great interview and, um, I'm so glad we got a chance to, uh, to connect and, and talk about your project to my listeners. I appreciate it. Yeah. I appreciate it, man. It was, it was a lot of fun. I was uh, very awesome. excited for this interview. Cool, man. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it and, uh, have a great rest of time and, uh, good luck on all your future uh, projects, man. Awesome. Thank you, dude. Thanks. Bye now. All right, everybody. How about that conversation with Brady? Awesome, awesome stuff here. These guys, I mean, he's got an amazing product that, uh, I mean, this is it's going to go like gangbusters. He's, he's got a scale issue right now. Doesn't everybody want to have a scale issue or like, yeah, I just got to hire more people. I got to make more products. I mean, that would be awesome, awesome problem to have here. So Brady, again, thank you so much for taking time out of your day here for us to, uh, for us to chat. Uh, it was great meeting you and learning about your product, learning about your puzzle books. Um, all right, everybody. Uh, if you've enjoyed what you listen, what you're listening to, make sure you hit the subscribe button. You know what else? Leave us a review. A review would be awesome. We love reviews. Um, there is nothing better than getting one of those reviews. Well, I don't really know. I don't really need the reviews. We still do this. Um, but, you know, if you feel like you're over there and you want to leave it, that would be awesome. Um, and again, like I said, if you're going to think about launching a campaign, let's at least chat. Go to woodshed.agency. All your stuff's going to be there from the blogs, the podcasts, to what we do, uh, past support, things to download. There's just so much. Get in our ecosystem, man. I won't I won't leave you alone if you do. All right. That was too creepy. They say that's too creepy. I shouldn't do it. Um, all right, everybody. Get your masks out. Get your bandanas out. Make sure you guys are staying safe, um, staying home, uh, enjoying guys like me making content. And um, we'll talk to you all later in the week. Bye, everybody.